We are going to close out our study of Psalm 25 this evening. We're going to start at verse 16. We've been kind of going stanza by stanza. And what we've been doing is sort of imagining that King David is hosting or teaching a master class on intimacy with God and living the Christian life, giving us incredible spiritual truths that have been revealed to him by the Lord through experience and by the Holy Spirit as well. Now, the last time we were together, the words that we read were full of praise and confidence as David proclaimed God's greatness and the power of his work on behalf of his people. We talked about how God's people's lives are transformed when they follow in the Lord's ways and uh, the amazing things that God does on our behalf and how there's goodness in the Lord, how our feet are being plucked out of every net. But now in a closing prayer here at the end of the song, David's demeanor seems to dramatically change. Rather than oozing calm and confidence, David comes across even as anxious or desperate concerning the circumstances of his life. The reality of the dangers he was up against flood into his mind and it drove him to his knees in prayer. But here's the important part. What we are gonna find is that in this time of great strain, David doubles down on exactly what he said back in verse one. Now listen, we don't know how long it took David to write this psalm. I think if you're like me, I kind of slip into a mindset of thinking, yeah, David just sat down and in about 10 minutes this song was done and then he moved on to the next one, right? That's not really how poetry and songwriting works. That can happen, but you know, uh, I was looking up some stats. There was one famous poem that took you know, 10 years to write. Uh, Bruce Springsteen's famous song, Born to Run, took six months for him to write. We don't know how long it took David to compose this song. I doubt very much that he just sat down one bright morning and it just streamed straight out of his pen without any interruption. And we see a great change in the attitude and, and in the demeanor and the spirit of the words here. And yet, he's going to double back down on what he said there in verse one. His lecture to us about God and faith and spirituality, it isn't just theoretical. That's what that tells us. David's hope is the Lord. It's his trust and it's his confidence. And this is the way of life he is determined to live, no turning back, no matter how many dangers he faces. Now, I'm always amazed to hear the statistical data about, say, socialism on college campuses or among college professors here in the States. Uh, according to some of the data I read the other day, about 18% of social science professors in the United States, 18%, one out of five or so, self-identify as Marxists compared to only 5% of social scientist professors who identify as conservatives. Just kind of an interesting number. Of course, these, uh, or as of 2016, this was kind of a surprise to me as well, the Communist Manifesto still ranks among the three most frequently assigned texts at American universities. One is Plato's Republic, one's something I've never heard of somehow, and one is the Communist Manifesto, right? It appears in more than 3,000 college course syllabi in the United States as of a couple years ago. Now, of course, these professors who are, are preaching Marxism or espousing these views, they don't live in communist nations, do they? Uh, they can lecture their theories from the comforts of freedom and affluence and security, while people in socialist countries 
like Venezuela and Vietnam, North Korea, well, they struggle to survive. And so there's a great disconnect. In other words, their theories don't work out in reality. Now, what about our Christian faith? David has been lecturing us in this psalm about spiritual things, about the Christian faith. Well, does it actually work? We hear passages, we hear preaching full of promises and plans and all of that, but does trusting in God really work when the foes and the fears and the flesh comes knocking at the door? Invites us to live it too. And so let's join David in his prayer here and see what lessons and encouragements we can gain for the reality we face in this life. First in verse 16, it says, turn yourself to me and have mercy on me for I am desolate and afflicted. Throughout the psalm, we have hopefully noticed the intimacy of the relationship between God and Christian. It is a relationship that's not mechanical and not transactional. It's full of kindness and affection and attention. It's intimate fellowship with our Savior. We saw that last time. It talks about, hey, those who fear God, the secret of the Lord is with them. And it's a complicated phrase for translators, but it's intimate fellowship. And, and the Lord shares his heart and he draws us near to him. And so that's what a relationship with the Lord is like. Here, for some unspecified reason, David feels that there's a break in the connection between he and God. And he asks the Lord to turn toward him. Now, we can be sure from the Bible that God will never, no, never, not ever leave us or forsake us. That is Jesus' promise to us as uh, believers. David also knew this was true. Things were a little differently arranged in the Old Testament. Believers in the Old Testament had less understanding than we do. We have the full revelation of God in the scriptures and the arrangement of how the Holy Spirit interacted with believers in the Old Testament before the day of Pentecost uh, was somewhat different. But even David understood that God had not forsaken him. Remember, he is speaking out of uh, emotion. He's speaking in poetry here. Uh, we know that David understood this because here's what he wrote back in Psalm 22, verse 24. It says, for he, God, has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him, but when he cried to him, he heard. And so David understood that God is not a forsaker. But what we see here is that in a time of great pressure and great anguish, David felt a distance from God, and we understand that. We can feel that from time to time. And all he was left with was loneliness and hurt. And so I think in this opening verse, we can learn a great many things. First of all, David has been declaring the many truths about God's mercy and God's grace. And now we see him actually appeal to that grace. He doesn't just know about it. He says, I'm going to appeal to it. I'm going to go to it. I want to lay hold of it. And so he's practicing what he preaches. Grace is not just some fairy tale idea meant to help tuck us in at night right? Everything's going to be fine. Grace, feel better. That's not what grace is. It's the answer to fear and to the onslaughts we face. It's a real, real work of God in our lives day by day. Now, second, withdrawal from God never leads to growth or to help in our lives. It leads to desolation, right? David felt far from God, not because God had moved away from him, but because there was some barrier of doubt or sin or callousness on David's part. In verse 18, we'll see he connects his affliction he's talking about with his own sin. But the application for us is this. If we feel or when we feel spiritually dry or alienated or at a distance from God, the answer is never to withdraw further from spiritual things or to separate from our relationship with the Bible or from the community of Christians around us. That's never the answer. The answer, 
given by David's example, is to go immediately into the throne room of heaven in prayer before the Lord, allow him to do what he wants to do, attach ourselves to the Lord again, and to just cast ourselves and our cares upon the Lord, for he cares for us. Third, we see as we do so often through David's example, we can talk to God about anything. You do not need to be shy or fearful to pray to God about anything. The spoiler alert is he already knows what you were thinking anyway. But we can bear our hearts before God, our our deepest concerns, our deepest weaknesses. We can go before the Lord and pray about those things to him and not think that the Lord is just gonna, I can't believe you said that to me. I can't believe you would come and try to pray and talk about how you feel bad right now. We kind of have that tendency to think that the Lord's gonna be disappointed with us, right? Of course he's not gonna be disappointed with us. He loves us like the greatest father that he is, right? And so we can go and talk to God about anything from the depths of our soul. We need not be shy about any issue when we go to prayer. And the scripture is clear that we can and should pour out the whole of our hearts in prayer before the Lord and then allow him to do what he wants to do. Now, verse 17, David says, the trouble of my heart's uh, heart have enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. As we've said, we're not sure when and why this song was written as far as the particulars going on in his life at the time, but there are some clues that it was later on in his life. He references his youth back in verse seven, and so we speculate that he's at least in middle age, maybe a little bit older. But here we see that all the circumstances in his life have not just magically worked out. In fact, it seems they have gone from bad to worse at this point in time. And we should notice two things from David's example here. First of all, he does not complain about God. Now, he is concerned and he's got a lot going on and he's got anxiety, sure, but he does not complain about God. He doesn't say, you know what, God, I've been faithful. I've done what you wanted. I'm the special king of Israel. Why don't you make everything comfortable for me? That's not what he says. He pleads with the Lord for deliverance, but he's not upset with the Lord. And second, he does not lose his confidence in God or his power. Yes, things have gone from bad to worse circumstantially at the time, but where does he go for help still? Well, he goes to God like he always did. And there were a few times, and we talked about this before, where David did not go to God for help, and they were disasters. He went down to the Philistines, or he went here or there. But the usual plan of his heart was to just go to the Lord for help, and he does it again. He's still confident that the Lord is mighty to save and deliver him out of these ever-growing troubles. And they weren't just external troubles. Look at verse 18. It says, look on my affliction and my pain and forgive all my sins. As always, David was quick to acknowledge the enemy within and to lay himself bare for God to perform spiritual surgery on his heart. He wasn't interested at all in working off his sins. You notice that? He doesn't go to the Lord and say, tell me what to do so that I might wipe away my own sins. No, he wasn't interested in that at all. He wanted his sins removed by God. He wanted them forgiven. He said, hey, that's my only hope. And that's a consistent theme in his songwriting. Lord, you're my only hope. Your mercy is the only footing on which I can stand. And he asks again here for that cleansing work of God in his life. Notice, though, the first half of the verse. New Living Translation reads it this way. Feel my pain 
and see my trouble. That's a pretty dramatic prayer to pray to a divine being, right? If we step back and think about it, and he's praying to the God of heaven and earth, the creator of all things, and he says, hey, Lord, I want you to feel my pain and to feel my trouble. But you know what? That's exactly what our God has done. What other God created by the thoughts of man and the wickedness of man can say, can they say, that God felt my pain? The gods of the world inflict pain upon human beings when you don't do the right thing or when you don't act the right way or when you don't measure up in some way. They toy with people, right? You think of the Greek gods or you think of some of these other gods in pagan cultures like India or or those sorts of things. But our God... He did exactly what David prays for here. He felt our pain. Jesus came as the man of sorrows, we're told, acquainted with grief. He did not bypass suffering. You know, the Lord could have bypassed a lot of suffering, but he didn't. He did not bypass grief. In fact, we read this in Hebrews 2. He himself, Jesus, has gone through suffering and testing. He is able to help us when we are being tested. Our Savior understands our suffering because he has felt it himself. And he knows exactly what is going on in your heart and going on around your life. He sees and he knows and he has felt those hurts. And he will not leave you as an orphan. Instead, he has come to embrace us with grace and forgiveness and empowering for whatever situation we're facing today. Our God has felt pain. That's an amazing thing. And he's felt pain on our behalf so that he can comfort us and so that he could do something about our suffering. Verse 19, consider my enemies for they are many and they hate me with cruel hatred. David has asked God to deal with the enemy within, but he also asked the Lord to deal with the enemy outside the gates. And here he doesn't try to give God a list of actions he should take. He simply asks the Lord to consider his foes. He doesn't say, Lord, here's my list of bad guys. Now go do this to them. He just says, hey, Lord, will you consider, will you think about these people that are coming against me right now, these enemies that are at the gates and trying to end my life? Will you consider them? Uh, He had some big league troubles, but he was friend to a big league God, and David believed that God was on the side of his people, and he knew that God moved on behalf of his people, and so David prays that God would defend him against the attacks of his enemies. And I think there's a lesson on prayer for us here subtle one perhaps, but we know David is not young when he wrote this psalm, right? So he's seen God move on his behalf when he came against Goliath or when Saul was coming against him and when he faced so many other armies and enemies during his reign as king. And yet here he is praying the same sort of prayer again. And that's okay. He didn't give up you know, praying for God's regular intervention in his daily life. He didn't get to a point where he says, well, I don't pray about that anymore. That's, that's, that's old stuff. I don't, I don't even worry about that. I just, I just slip into what, you know, my pattern of living. No, he's, he's back praying something that he would have been praying about back when he was a little shepherd boy facing lions and bears and things like that. Um, it's interesting. In a similar way, Jesus taught us to pray what? Give us this day our daily bread, a regular sort of interaction with the Lord. The Lord isn't hoping we get to a point where we pray about fewer and fewer things, Right? God isn't thinking, yeah, when you're like a baby Christian, you gotta call me all the time, but hopefully you get to the point where I don't wanna talk to you anymore, right? No, that's not what the Lord is doing. That's not the case at all. 
David has been talking about how to have a deep, transformative, mature relationship with God. And we see he's still praying some of the prayers that he would have prayed as a young man. He was still convinced that God cared about these daily situations and that God was the solution to the troubles he was facing. That God had the answer or the sustenance David would need to travel through his time of trouble. Verse 20, keep my soul and deliver me. Let me not be ashamed for I put my trust in you. Now, this is the key point for us tonight. In this time of immense difficulty and dread, David does not jump ship. He does not make an about face. He doesn't pivot at all. He doubles down on exactly what he said back in verse 1. Let me read that for us again. You can compare verse 20 to verse 1. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, I trust in you. Let me not be ashamed. Let not my enemies triumph over me. And so we've been progressing through this psalm as if we're students in a classroom, listening to David lecture out of the wealth of his wisdom and experience. But by verse 20, we're no longer in the classroom, right? The class, the lecture has wrapped up. And David is talking about concrete reality now. I mean, real world stuff. And what does he do when real problems of life spring up around him? He doubles down. He says, I'm going to do exactly what I just taught you, you should do. I'm going to do that as well. He applies his own lecture and he reaffirms his absolute trust in God. Now, the prayer in verse 20 sounds much more strained and much more urgent than it did back in verse 1. In verse 1, it feels a little bit more general. Now, this feels very personal and like very urgent. Hey, right, right now, Lord, right now, I'm, I'm needing this intervention in my life. But the truth and the plan is the same, right, in verse 1 and verse 20. And though it seems that David will not experience immediate deliverance in this scene, his trust is still secure. He knows God is still strong to save. He knows God is still mindful of him. He knows that he's still on a path of life leading to glory. David is able to endure his suffering because he is resolved. He has decided this is his life. He's decided to follow his Savior. No turning back, no turning back, right? Like the old song. He chooses to fear the Lord rather than fear his circumstances. He chooses to wait on God rather than scramble for the quickest exit out of his short-term troubles. He understands that the ultimate solution to all that he's facing and all he ever will face in the future is not circumstance, it's Savior. He's like, I'm making this choice in my mind and in my heart. I'm resolving to follow the Savior. No matter what's going on in good times or bad times with this foe or that foe, I'm going to trust in the Lord. He's going to be my light and my shield and my salvation. Because he understands that if the Lord is near, nothing else matters. At least not ultimately. Because the Lord is a savior, full of grace and loving kindness towards those who fear him. That's what he's been talking about in this whole song. And so knowing this, David does not change his plans. He does not pivot his position. He presses into God with hope and expectation. Not because he was given a prophecy of what was going to happen. Nathan the prophet didn't show up and say, don't worry, in three days the following things are going to happen. He doesn't know what's going to happen in the context of this psalm. But he knew God's heart. He knew what kind of God he served. He knew what kind of a person the Lord is. And so, of course, David went running to him, not only in prayer, but in the next verse we see in his conduct as well. Verse 21, let integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. And so while he waited and endured these problems, David felt sure that integrity and uprightness would act like bodyguards for him. He would be preserved, he says, by walking the way of righteousness. Now, tonight, for all of us who are Christians... 
we're waiting on the Lord for something. Everybody here who's a Christian is waiting on the Lord for something, right? Maybe you're waiting for deliverance from some trial or for, from some suffering or from some danger. Or maybe you're just waiting for the Lord's return. Maybe if things go and swell in your life, okay, you're still waiting for the Lord's return and for, uh, for that moment of uh, where we'll be face-to-face with him. Either way, all of us are waiting. And as we wait, our lives should be characterized by these things, by honesty, faithfulness, truthfulness, Christ-likeness. Because fearing God, following Jesus, and being a Christian isn't just an attitude or a set of you know, theories in our head. It's real world stuff. It's an activity. It's a lifestyle. That's what David's been explaining. And here David gets to live up to his promise back in verse five. If you were here a couple weeks ago, we, we read it. it said, he said, I'll wait on the Lord all day long. That's what he said he would do. And okay, now you get to do that. Now you get to go out into the real world and wait on, on the Lord and, and trust the Lord to do what he wants to do. And he says, yeah, I'm gonna do it. And I'm gonna do it with integrity and uprightness, walking the way of righteousness as revealed in the scriptures. And then he closes the song, not with the resolution to his troubles, but in the waiting. Verse 22, redeem Israel, O God, out of all their troubles. So notice, they're left hanging. He's left hanging. Israel's left hanging with him, but he's hanging on the Lord. He's clinging to the Lord in trust and in expectation. He's clinging on those promises. He's, he's left hanging uh, to God's faithfulness and mercy. And he closes the song reminding us that God is strong enough for all of it, all the people, all the troubles. And when David says redeem there, it means ransom. He says, ransom Israel, oh God. And you know, God has enough for all of it. He's not gonna run out of ransom, right, before he gets to you or me. Oh man, oh man, I ran out. The storehouses of heaven are, are empty. If only I had a little bit more, I could get you out of your issue or I could fill you with grace. No, the Lord never grows weak. He never is weary and he will never run out of power. And for the concrete realities of our lives, we'll probably run into some problem or some trouble, some suffering. But here's what we can do. Rush to God in prayer in, with confidence uh, that he is ready to hear us and ready to sustain us. And we need not be shy before the Lord, but we should be bold to pour our hearts out honestly before this loving Savior because he's not forgotten us. He's not annoyed with us. He sees and knows and he has suffered like we have. And he is working out his ransom redemption in our lives this very day, even this moment. So let's take some time to pray to this God who has promised to be here with us tonight.